welcome to the Momentum Matters podcast, where we have courageous conversations with women leaders. You'll hear about their accomplishments, experiences, challenges, and best advice. If you're inspired by women who have overcome barriers and gone on to do extraordinary things, you're in the right place. My name is Karen Taradis, and I'm the CEO of Social U, a digital marketing firm offering social media management, training, and consulting. Today on Momentum Matters, we're excited to introduce Dr. Sherry Cannon, a professor of abdominal imaging and the Witten Stanley Endowed Chair for the UAB Department of Radiology. She'll be sharing with us today about sustainable self-care practices to maintain physical health. Now here's our host, April Benatello, CEO of Momentum Matters. Okay, Dr. Sherry Cannon, thank you so very much for joining us today. I know it is the most absolutely crazy time as you're trying to figure out how to get vaccines spread all across UAB and throughout the state and to other hospitals. So we really appreciate you taking some time out to talk to our audience today about self-care. Sure. I'm glad to be here. It's an important topic. Yeah, especially right now. I think, you know, everybody coming off of 2020 and starting out the new year and making making those resolutions and trying to decide, you know, what they're going to do differently. Um, It's a really timely topic for us right now. And so the whole month of January, we're going to be focusing in on um, different issues regarding physical, mental, and spiritual health. Um, So today talking about specifically about self-care. But before we do, I mean, I know you very well. Those of you who don't know Dr. Cannon, she was our past president of the Momentum Board of Directors. Um, she, as you heard in the intro, is the chair of the radiology department at UAB, a tremendously demanding job, especially during a COVID pandemic. Um, and, and so many honors that just so numerous to mention. Um, Sherry, I, I don't really know how you find the time to do all that you do, but we're going to talk more about that. All but right. before we get to that, what I'd love to do if you can, is um, I'd like to help our audience get to know you and get to know how you came to the position of leadership that you have currently at UAB. So I was wondering if you could give us maybe an idea of how you grew up. (laughs) That's a long timeline. (laughs) Um, So I grew up in a town in uh, Texas. I'm a Texan at heart. Um, I grew up in Garland, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Um, For those of you who have seen the adult cartoon King of the Hill, it's based upon my hometown. And in fact, they call it Arlen in the show, but it's Garland. And and I have to admit, it's pretty true to life, unfortunately. Um, I grew up in a very conservative, relatively small town with a very traditional family structure. Um, my father worked in the newspaper business at that point, and my mom uh, worked at home. And in fact, in thinking about it, I don't recall any of the moms that I knew that worked, not not one, um, which at the time, it never struck me as anything odd. Um, in reflection, though, and at the time, of course, I didn't realize it, but in reflection, I, I realized the environment that I grew up in um, was really impactful um, to where I am today. Um, my parents 
raised me uh, with the belief that I could do anything that I wanted to do. Um, gender wasn't an issue. In fact, in some respects, it was opposite. I, I was very much a tomboy, and, and my father treated me as such. I mean, he taught me to hunt and fish, and uh, I was shooting guns by age six. Um, and so it, gender never really entered into the picture, and, and my parents were very supportive of me. Um, they encouraged me, and, um, and, and I don't know exactly how it transpired, but I was very independent early on and realized the strength in being independent. And, and for example, I learned quickly that if I could earn my own money, it gave me a tremendous amount of independence. So I started with odd jobs at probably age eight, nine, 10, mowing lawns, babysitting, pet sitting, you name it, I did it. Um, and, and I remember finding that really empowering. Um, so my parents were supportive, but when I look back, I realized now the, the, the gender bias that was all around me and, and frankly, the overt, uh, racism, and I'm not talking about implicit bias here. I'm talking about overt racism. Um, I went to South Garland high school. Our mascot was the Southern Colonel. Our fight song was Dixie and we had the Confederate flag and, um, it never even dawned on me at the time that that was unusual. Um, so it, it was an interesting time to grow up. I always tell the story that my um, my counselor in high school and I were going round and round at one point trying to figure out my classes for the next year. And she was also a, a neighbor of ours. And, and, you know, she finally said, you know, she was frustrated because I wanted to take chemistry two and, and AP calculus. And, and she got frustrated and said, you know, Sherry, you would be better served taking typing and home ec. And so my response, um, I'm not sure what I said out loud, but in my head, it was basically, screw you, I'm going to do what I want to do, and did not take typing or home ec, which was probably the biggest mistake of my life. I still can't type, and as it turns out, it's an important skill. Um, but looking back on it, I just think about, wow, um, it's unbelievable that that happened. But what that did for me was in, in some respects gave me great resilience. You know, I kind of responded with, okay, I'm going to put on my big girl pants and show you. And it kind of galvanized this response I had to gender bias. And I, I you know, now this is all in reflection. I, I think about, I carried that with me probably to this day. Um, I went from Garland to the University of Texas at Austin for undergraduate and Four years in Austin is spectacular. Um, wish I was still there sometimes. It was a lot of fun. So, yeah, so I went to uh, University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston uh, for medical school and met my husband to be uh, when I was a third year medical student. And my initial pathway was actually orthopedic surgery. And um, as part of getting ready for that, I did a radiology elective and it kind of changed my world and decided, well, that's what I wanted to do. And so I came to Birmingham to UAB for radiology residency and ended up staying. And my husband eventually joined me here after three years. And we love Birmingham and, and I love UAB and I, I can't imagine being anywhere else. And 
as it's offered me opportunities to grow. And so growing from a resident um, to a position of leadership in the department, and um, it's it's been a great journey. And how did you decide, A, to become a doctor, and B, why radiology? So the doctor um, piece... Um, you know, I remember in elementary school, in fact, I have a, a hanging on my wall that I made in second grade and I wanted to be a veterinarian. And, and it says that um, I want to grow up, be a veterinarian, make three dollars an hour, live in Florida and uh, have three children and cook and clean. <laughs> Clearly, most wow. of that didn't, didn't happen. <laughs> um, I. Uh, our family practice physician, uh, Charles Tubbs, who was also a member of our church, um, invited me to work in his office one summer, starting out in the front office, answering phones, filing, and um, knew of my interest in medicine or, or potential interest and kind of um, pulled me under his wing and, and started seeing patients with me and, and, and talking about patients and taking me to the hospital on his rounds. He really, truly um, not only mentored me, but sponsored me for opportunities. And in fact, I got a position at our local hospital working in the ICU as a clerk um, because of his support. And, um, and so that really turned me on to the world of medicine. And so really for most of high school on, I, I always knew I was going to be a physician. It was a pretty straight path for me. Um, the radiology path, as I said, I kind of veered from orthopedics to radiology. And radiology is interesting because you're really at the center of all specialties. And, and imaging touches all patients. And the, the intellectual challenge of diagnosing disease, and particularly at a place like UAB where we have some of the most complicated patients, um, I found that incredibly rewarding and, and challenging. And it, and it still is after all these years. Um, I, I love my job. And in addition to being the chair of the department, you also teach. Is that correct? I do. I do. In fact, I just gave a, a course two days ago. So um, I, I give lectures I, both in clinical imaging, um, but also uh, lectures on leadership and uh, diversity and inclusion and uh, burnout. And, and, you know, it's one of my favorite things to teach. It's, uh, it's exciting, particularly our trainees, to see individuals early in their career who are so hungry to learn and, and, and so engaged and in and really teaching in the realm of my clinical work is even more fun. And, and I do contrast fluoroscopy. So upper GIs, barium enemas, barium swallows. And it's great when I have a trainee with me and can engage with them and the patient and, and really teach them uh, the art of medicine. But it's, it's very much an art and um, it's, it's fun to make that connection between a patient and a trainee. Awesome. And what, so in, in preparing for those topics, for those lectures and in those classes, what in the short amount of time that we have, can you tell us about the physiological 
aspect of um, the stresses that we are often under in our day-to-day lives and then why self-care is so important to, to balancing that out. You know, it's interesting, the, the school of thought, um, the, uh, really the science behind stress and, and how it um, demonstrates itself in our body has, has really evolved over the years. And, and initially, disease was thought of as this very specific related to the body and things that go wrong in the body. And really, not a lot of attention to the impact of our environment uh, on the body. And, and I was definitely in the camp, again, this theme of put your big girl pants on and go to work and, you know, don't worry about stress. You can hammer through it. And, and I, I realize that's absolutely not true. And we know now the direct link of stress in so many diseases as well as, as, treatment and recovery from those diseases, how it can impact that as well. Um, So we have to be cognizant of that and and we have to take steps to mitigate um, that. We're we're not going to remove stress in our life. It's just not going to happen. And particularly in times such as this in a pandemic, I mean, the amount of stress, the burden of the pandemic of just the disease itself, the unknown, the loss of life, the illness and family members, the fear, um, the loss of uh, jobs, the the financial impact. I mean, it's it's just in some cases too much to bear. We have to learn to manage through that, and I think it's important, particularly as women and as we role model for our children. Um, it's even more important. They need to see that managing stress and 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 taking inventory of how it's impacting us and taking active steps to mitigate it is, is absolutely paramount. Yeah. So you, in addition to all of the work that you do at UAB, you also somehow find time to do a lot of service work, do a lot of you sit on a lot of boards. As I mentioned, you were past president at Momentum. Um, you sit on a lot of, national boards for radiology, I think three, at least three or four of them or you have at some point in your life. So how do you, first of all, what, what leads you to do that, what I would call kind of extra work um, when you already are incredibly, incredibly busy doctor and leader at UAB? Well, you know, I think it's a matter of taking inventory of your life and, and really being honest with yourself and, and identifying things that are important to you and and things that you have a passion for and, and applying those skills because it's incredibly fulfilling. And so even though in some respects it may be considered work, if it's fulfilling work, it's really not work, right? It's, it's how we're able to impact the world. And, and I, I cringe a little bit when people talk about work-life balance because balance implies just that balance. I don't think there ever really is complete balance. It's a give and take. Um, but if you're doing things that you love, that's okay as long as you're making time for all of those important things, family, friends, self-care, 
et cetera. So I, I've made a, a real concerted effort in the last probably five years to focus in on some key areas and have even done this within my professional work at UAB is, is really advancing women leaders. And I, you know, I, as I think back and, and I am considering that I'm in my final phase of my career, I want to look back and, and see that I have left a legacy of, of enabling women leaders. I, we need to do that. And, and I'm in a field that is a, a very small minority of, of women leaders. And, and I would love to leave this field so that there are as many women chairs of radiology as men. Um, but we have a little ways to go. Yes. Yes, we do. But we're happy to partner with you on that journey. Yeah. <laughs> and I thank you so much for all that you do at UAB to help other women leaders along, um, especially for your most recent referral for my Minty mentor relationship. With, uh, Minty, yeah, she's she's Natasha is wonderful, and and has that's been a very enjoyable and gratifying experience for me, and I think it's been helpful for her. It has been. She's she's commented. It's been helpful, and and you know I think that's the power that we can bring is our network of women, and and the fact that I can reach out to you and say, hey, I've got this wonderful woman who really needs a mentor and, and, and you're agreeing to do that. There's, there's exponential power as we unite together and kind of pull women up. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, back coming back around to, to our topic of self care. um, I'm thinking about, a lot of women probably think of self-care as a day at the spa or, you know, taking a bubble bath. And while those, both of those things are great and definitely constitute self-care, what are some other things that are more, maybe um, more in in our day-to-day life that you would actually consider to be self-care? Well, I, I don't know that this applies to everyone, but I, for me, I really need to habituate things like, you know, brushing your teeth in the morning. You just have to make things as part of a pattern. And so we need to look at our life holistically and identify things that we really need to do on a daily basis. And it's really big groups and it's nothing surprising. We, we all know these things, but the challenge is for us to do something about it. So sleep, we'll start with sleep. You need sleep. You can't scrimp on sleep. Now, how much sleep do you need? Well, it depends. It, it varies among individuals, but chronic uh, a few hours every night is not good. Now, yes, occasionally we have a long all-nighter for whatever reason, um, but we shouldn't. I mean, I, I am a nine-hour-a-night sleep person, and my family knows, I mean, 8.30, I'm starting to kind of nod off. Nine o'clock, I'm in bed asleep. And, and we just have to establish those boundaries. Now, I can say that now because I don't have babies at home. Now, when I had babies, that's all out the window. So sleep, nutrition, again, really set aside the ability to eat healthy and, 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 and not diet. Um, you know, I've lost probably 
3,000 pounds in my life. It's the same five, 10 pounds, I don't know how many times. And and I've just finally, I'm just now getting to the point, probably it's because I'm old enough and just at some point just say, screw it. You know, it's just about eating healthy. It's not about being a certain dress size and it's not about being a certain weight. It's about eating healthy. And and I find that incredibly challenging um, because when you come home after a long work day, cooking is not on the top of my list. And I will tell you, the thing that drives me crazy, particularly during this COVID time, is that for some reason, I'm the magical one that has the answer, what's for dinner? And I swear, if my family asks me again, what's for dinner, I just now don't answer the text and I don't respond. So (laughs) it's tough. So sleep, nutrition, exercise, and all these things have to be done consistently in moderation. Um, and, and so that there's longevity there and it's not a crash diet. It's not a fad workout process. It's not, it's just moderation. And then the other piece that I think where women struggle is, is healthcare. You know, you need to have a primary care physician. Your gynecologist doesn't count. No, no, uh, nothing negative for a gynecologist because they're important and they're are some gynecologists who truly serve in a primary care fashion, but most don't, Um, particularly for women age over 50. You need to have a primary care person that makes sure that you're getting all your screening studies from head to toe and that can talk to you about those and and, and what studies you need and why. And um, I think that's important. And we need to do that year in and year out and, and probably the easy way to do it, just like with mammograms. Schedule it on your birthday. You'll never forget it that way. It makes for a little bit of an unpleasant birthday, but you won't forget it. Right. Yeah. I do my um, my head to toe dermatology appointment to check for skin cancer. Yeah. Birthday gift to myself. Yeah. And that's a super important one. And that's one that I've just started in this last year because my dad just was diagnosed with a melanoma last year. And so, yeah, I think that's incredibly important. You know, Andrea McCaskey, who works here in our office, um, Mm -hmm. brought something to my attention the other day. She said, you know, it was just a tremendous misconception for me. I did not know that black people could get skin cancer. I mean, she she could, but didn't ever think that it could be as prevalent as it is. Yeah, yeah. It's it's clearly lower risk for dark-complected individuals, but it's absolutely not zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So you were in Momentum Class 5. Yep. They graduated in about 2007. Wow, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So thinking back to that experience, I wanted to to see if you had, I mean, I know that I did in my Momentum class, I had a really big aha moment about the self-care piece. I was absolutely in my own personal inventory was absolutely not doing nearly all of the things that were on the momentum checklist. And I went back last year and looked at my, my class binder and I was so happy that, you know, now for me, it's been, um, I don't know, almost a decade since I went through momentum and I now can check off almost all of the things on that list. So I was wondering what your experience was at Momentum in terms of, of 
understanding more about the importance of self-care? And do you think that what you experienced is something that the rest of your class kind of, do you think it was common? This is my question. You know, I, I remember um, the thing that my aha was around uh, mindfulness and, and focus. I, I, I tend to be a, well, particularly in that time, I was really a multitasker and, and, and I've always prided myself on the ability to multitask and, and through momentum realize the power of focus and perhaps not so many tasks at once. And I was always struck by the focus you could have by not having your cell phone on your person and truly engaged in the moment. And then when we would do these quiet sessions of, of breathing and meditation, which I typically had not ever done, it was really powerful. The, just, and the fact that, yes, you could step away from the world for a day and, you know, things didn't fall apart. Everything continued back at work just fine. In fact, most people didn't even know you were gone. Um, so I think it was the power to realize, yes, you can slow down. And it's it's not only okay, it's it's really good. And, and you know, we've learned since that multitasking has always been touted as some great skill. And, in fact, it's probably not very good. It just demonstrates that we can do a bunch of things with some focus across those things and perhaps not as good as we could if we focus singularly on one. One of my multitasking things it was in picking up the house and picking up things in the evening, you know, after the kids and my husband, et cetera. And, and I was notorious for throwing things away. Like if it's in the way, I'd quickly look at it. Oh, it looks like garbage. And so I, over the years, thrown away some pretty important things, of course, always denying it. <laughs> and I realized, you know, once I started slowing down and really having more focus in my life, there were a lot less important documents that disappeared. So, <laughs> yeah. so you, you just mentioned your family and, and your children, um, you know, thinking back to when, when they were younger and I agree with you, I don't like the term work life balance, but mm. I, I do like Anne Marie's term of work life management. So we all have limited time. We all have limited resources. We all have more goals than we can get accomplished one day. So it's just a question of managing all of those resources. So I'm, I'm curious if you could share with our listeners how you managed uh, with your husband, your children, and your career. So a lot of variables there that, that worked. Um, the most important variable is my husband. Um, Malcolm is an emergency medicine physician and in the first part of our family life, uh, worked at Druid City Hospital um, for about, I want to say about 18 years and, and some months up to 25, 28 shifts a month, 12 hour, 12 hour shifts. So he was gone. So when the babies were little and I have two children, um, he was, I was really the parent um, those years. But the second half of our family life, it's, it's completely flipped. He, he now has two urgent care clinics and has become the primary caregiver for our children and taking care of the household. And it, it, this was not choreographed 
purposefully. It, it worked out that way in great part because Malcolm has been so supportive of my career and just frankly, reflexively stepped in and it just transitioned. So his support is just, it has been the key. That's been really the foundational piece. Um, the other pieces are realizing you have to delegate a lot. And, and, and so I just started peeling things off to delegate. You know, the first thing was having someone come clean my house, which was hard for me to turn over and Malcolm having someone take care of our lawn and, and then really became then the story with our nannies, which I won't go into, but by the time my children both grew up, we had gone through, I think we counted 26 nannies. So that was a journey. Um, So those two things, the other thing that, that, I have learned in more recent years is getting rid of the the clutter and the inefficiencies in your life. And 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 two years ago, we had an, it wasn't exactly an aha moment, but it was almost that where we lived in a fairly large house. We had a lot of stuff. We had a lot of uh, space in the house. We never we literally used up a quarter of this house, and and yet we were spending most of our free time doing things to the house, fixing things, et cetera. And, and then we realized, you know, we've got a lot of stuff we don't do anything with. So, so we sold our house, we sold everything in it and walked away. And um, we only kept the things that were most important to us. And it fit in a small U-Haul. There was one piece of furniture and some, you know, pictures, that kind of thing. And then we started over and a small downtown loft. And, and what that has allowed us to do, I, you know, I, we, I, we don't have a lot of clutter. Everything's very clean. We, it's efficient. We, you know, we have just the things we need and it's amazing the time that you save by doing that. And, and that I live next to work, I can walk to work. I'm, I've got an hour and a half back in every day, just with that simple move downtown. So these things add up. Um, but I, I, again, it gets back to your support system. That's the key is, is having support, being willing to help others, allow others to help you. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, that's how you achieve that, that integration or, or management of, of work in life. Yeah, totally agree. And, and it is also um, not, on you that I have and that supportive spouse certainly when your children get older life does get easier um, I tell my children just like my mother told me every time I tell them I love them I say I love you and I'll love you better and better the older you get <laughs> <laughs> it's true you know they get older they there are different challenges um right but right. it's um but yeah it is it is a little more manageable but those support systems are so incredibly essential um, when when we think about self care. Yes. Because without them, how could how could you do it all? Yeah, no, it it would. I I have been so lucky that I do have that support system because yeah, it it wouldn't work. Yeah. So our time is nearly up today, Sherry. Um, I. I did want to ask you for all of those folks out there who may really struggle with self-care. 
do you have any tips? Do you have any advice for how they can make that mental shift to pay attention? Well, I, I think you really have to establish in your mind why you're doing this. What What is the, the reason to do this? And I, and I would argue it's probably because of someone in your life who you love. You want to take care of yourself because of a significant other, a parent, a child. You want to be healthy so you can be there longer for them. So you have to establish the why of something uh, as the driver. And then the other piece is start small. Don't completely change out an entire diet or an exercise plan or just start with with baby steps. As the first of the new year, tell yourself, I'm going to eat one more vegetable in a meal. I mean, really small baby steps and do them. Try to do it for a week or a month. And then it becomes habituated. So you're not thinking about it. Um, same with seeing um, your physician, you know, get your skin check in March, see your primary care doctor in May, Wh- whatever the, if you can make it a pattern, then, then you're not having to think about it, uh, and, and, and procrastinate doing it. So, so get the why and really, really sit down. And even I'm not a journaler, I'm not, but some people tell me that that's helpful. Work through the why of something in a journal, because a lot of times we may give a why and a, a reflexive answer, but if you really dig deep, maybe it's that's really not the why behind it. I mean, sometimes it's as core as why do I want to do this? Because I'm afraid of dying. I want to be healthy. It is fear of dying, fear of losing loved ones. That's how we have to think about this, and and that's what truly motivates us. Not, you know, I want to fit in a size X pair of jeans. Although that would be nice. Oh, it would be though, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, Sherry, thank you so very much for sharing your experiences with us, sharing your wisdom with us. We have um, a few more of your medical friends from UAB that are going to be on this podcast later in the month. So we're really, we're really so lucky to have UAB in Birmingham and so lucky to have so many great women uh, at UAB leading. So we appreciate you. Uh, we appreciate you too, and 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 all that momentum has done for me. It's been I. It's just, it's been a remarkable journey. So thank you. And it continues on. It does. <laughs> <laughs> The Momentum Matters podcast would not be possible without our sponsors. Please visit our website, MomentumLeaders.org backslash sponsors to learn more. Signing off, this is Karen Taradis with Social U.